we were having a conversation about how people misunderstand the chants. You know, that sometimes people hear the chants and they don't know what they really say. O thou king of the infinite. Somebody thought it was, O thou king of the internet. (laughs) O thou king of the internet. (laughs) So anyway, go ahead, Tom. This is back on reading 18 on the top of page 32. You are going back. Okay, top of page 32, number 18. Uh That first paragraph. I think that just that one, it starts with the sense of being a separate egoic Pardon me, self. Tell me where, where you're reading. Um, Page 32 or number 18? I'm all mixed up. Well, number 18. Goes, oh, 32. Got it. Yeah, I'm on the right page. At the, top. the sense of being separate ego self. Okay. Yeah, I just think it's so interesting. I think he just kind of explains, <laughs> once again, he explains all of life in a paragraph. He says, the sense of being a separate egoic self begins with the astral, not with the physical body. Then he says, the soul is individualized spirit. It comes into separate existence with the causal body. So first it's universal, then it slips out into, starts to become separate. And then the soul energizes that expression, clothing it first in an astral body of light, then further it assumes a physical body, etc., etc., I just thought that was just really. Yeah, I think lucid. it is too. You know, I think someone asked me this morning where that thought came from, and it came from right here. I couldn't remember where it came from. No, it actually that that whole concept has. It's the most cogent explanation of how we are created and what happened to us. You know, the the causal, astral, and physical universes, and that progression from thought, energy to manifestation, is a pattern that is throughout all of creation because it is the fundamental pattern. There's spirit beyond all of this. Thought arises. And then when you add energy to that thought, it begins to manifest more strongly. And then eventually you see it. When we're talking about the laws of manifestation, the laws of prosperity, we always we, we talk about that's how things happen in this world. Is it first somebody can see? I always think of this building Somebody, somewhere, at some time, this building wasn't here. And so the thought came to someone that we'll put up this beautiful church. At that time, it was going to be a Catholic church dedicated to St. Aloysius. And then they energized that by making a blueprint of what this was supposed to be. In fact, I found all those blueprints, which I've kept under a bed for the last 20 years, and I finally gave them to somebody else to put under their bed so I don't have to do it anymore, but this huge box of all the blueprints for the whole building, an immense amount of work from the thought to to focus it down so that you could see exactly what it was going to be. And then from those blueprints, and they're a little dog eaten and a little coffee spilled on them as the builders, all those 50, 60 years ago, I think it was built in 1940 or 1950, they took all of that and they turned it into where we're standing right now. But somewhere in all that process, some individual had to have the idea that they would build it. Somebody said to the committee, let's build a church. And then they went ahead and did it. And now we're, we're living in it. And everything that happens, we, th- I, also, I also express that to explain how just because, I mean, the, how the vrittis in the chakras are like the blueprint that the energy that you put into being yourself and then they manifest as our bodies and our karma and all the experiences that we're going to have, 
but it's all the energy we put into it before it manifested that makes it manifest. It's not caused by the physical objects rubbing together. It's caused first by the idea, then by the energy we put into it, and then finally it manifests out. And that's also how we we return from it, is that we become less identified with the manifestation and more identified with the energy. And so we're less concerned about the specifics of what we're doing. We're more concerned about the consciousness we put into it, the attitudes we have. Um, I Forgive me because I, I, my classes cross in my mind these days, but uh, I, now, now I can't remember what I was... I can't remember what I didn't remember. Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> but we were talking about how to change ourselves in various ways, but just how little it matters what you actually do and how we're often trying to get the wrong guidance because we're so concerned. It was my Saturday class. Now it's in my mind. We're so concerned about the details we don't understand that the energy is what really causes everything to happen. So when we're trying to live more in our more expanded self, we identify less with being a man, a woman, an American, a a, a, a Croatian. Um, we identify less with our culture. We identify less with our parenting, all of those things, we just more identify with the energy that flows through us. We, we live more on the astral world in, in that sense and are always concerned that we make the energy correct because we know that's where everything is coming from. And then we also realize that our thoughts are just as real. But from all of this, in this one paragraph, you have this picture somewhere, and, and it's so hard not to anthropomorphize these things, and they become ridiculous. You have spirit beyond creation, And it occurs to him to make you, or to make me, the thought of each one of us. That's how it's written in here. The thought arises in the mind of God to manifest each one of us. Who knows why, but anyway, he did. So, the thought arises. Let me just go there for a minute. The universal eye first conceives this particular expression of itself the thought arises that there's going to be all this individuality. And then once that individuality is there, because in this weird way, you see, that spirit, part of the thought that spirit has is that that individuality will have free will. And so he doesn't manifest it as just himself. Like like a leaf on a tree doesn't have free will from the tree. It just is subject to whatever happens to the tree. But the thought that God had of us included the thought of free will. And so first we're in the causal, or we're on the causal plane. It's just a vibration. But somehow our individuality gets engaged in that. And we start intensifying the energy. And we intensify it to the point that it comes out as a physical being. And there we are. That's what I was saying on Sunday about the finger puppets. You know, you put a little puppet on your finger and then you start looking at it and it starts having this whole reality, even though it's really just a little knitted animal on your finger, but it seems real. And, and you always, you know, you always know that it's just a finger puppet, but you can persuade a lot of other people that it isn't. And you can actually, if you get into it enough, can persuade yourself. <laughs> you know, children don't know that their hands are their hands. Sometimes babies are frightened when their hands come in front of their face because from their point of view, it just appeared. (laughs) And they have no control over it. 
and they don't know where it came from or where it's going, and then it goes again, and then there it is. I mean, you can see how it would, because until you understand. So we think that this is a moving on its own, and then we begin to it look suspicious. And so then we recognize that maybe I'm divine, but I'm not so sure about you, <laughs> you know, until we can move all the way back from all of it. Yes, Tom, it's a great paragraph. Anything else? I'm glad you went back to it because I really like it too. So, let's see, now I'm a little lost. Oh, we were on number, here we are. Okay, we're on number 19. And it says, it's very short, Concerning Madame Galakurchi, again, I once asked the Master, how is she faring spiritually? She is soaring in God, he replied blissfully. Is that so sweet? Don't you just love that? Master just rejoices as the devotee progresses. I mean, what could please God more? What could please the Guru more than to see somebody actually pay attention to what he's doing? Galakuchi has a star. She was a very big, um, very big success. Once uh, Swamiji was talking, just commenting sort of with interest that people often had dreams about him. And he was commenting that he, and, and often in his dreams he said he would give them advice. And he said, interesting, because the advice he would give them would be the advice he would want to give them. Um, but he, has no, he said he had no awareness of it. And it was just a conversation about that interesting phenomenon that the soul does things that the, the uh, egoically, egoic self isn't aware of. In fact, Swami talked about how seemingly the more advanced you get, the, the, the space between those two realizations shrinks. But I asked him, I said, well, sir, um, do they listen to the advice you give them? And I, and I said, only in your dreams, Swamiji. <laughs> Which is really, unfortunately, too often true. So, when, Gala, when Master has someone who actually responds to him, I mean, that's a particular kind of joy. If we want to think in terms of, you know, pleasing God or pleasing Guru, that's really how you do it. You, you, you make progress yourself spiritually. And then their whole purpose of incarnating is fulfilled. It's as simple as that. It's one more reason to try to follow the path. Is if you love God and if you love Master, that's a really nice way. That's the gift you give back. Hmm. Number 20. The Master had me join him on a number of occasions when he was receiving guests. One visitor came several times, always with great enthusiasm. When it came to learning the teachings, however, his exuberance was less in evidence. The master asked me to instruct him in the techniques, but after this man had missed several appointments and hadn't even explained the reason for his absence, I decided that what he was interested in was more the glamour of being with the master than absorbing the substance of the teachings. He isn't sincere, I said to the master, the next time this man had scheduled a visit. The master smiled. Well, we'll have fun today, was his only comment. What followed was the usual enthusiasm on the visitor's part and the master's smiling acceptance of him for who he was. I'm afraid that for my part, I was far from being so accepting. Later, the master remarked to me, 
How dry you were toward him. How many would be left here if I had behaved toward all of you that way, so unforgivingly? Throughout this man's long life, in fact, he, remained toward, he retained toward the master in a rather unusual fashion the attitude of a devoted disciple. That's a very important story. The man, I, I, I know his name, but since Swami decided not to put it in there, he was a Hollywood figure. I'm not going to say because Swami didn't put it in. But anyway, he was a Hollywood figure, and he was very well known in Hollywood. And so Swami felt it was that was part of why Master, part of why he, you get bad habits when you're famous. But the, the real heart of the story it's something that is actually really important for all of us to understand on many levels, which is um, we need to see ourselves and evaluate ourselves insofar as we're going to do it, which is not such a great idea anyway, really according to that part of us which pulls us toward God and really not at all according to that part which is resistant and pulls us away. Um, all, all of the masters emphasize this. And Swami once read something that some other teacher had written, that a person is only as strong as their weakest quality. And Swami felt that was just entirely wrong. He said, we are as strong as our strongest quality. And especially when you're talking in a spiritual sense, because what you have to understand is whatever energy we put out to move us toward divine understanding is, is, is stepping into the current of the river. And when you step into the current of the river, there's a power there that will take you. I often think of it, what we call it divine grace, I think of it as, as matching funds. You know, a lot of the corporations here, you can give to your fa- same charity, your favorite charity, and then the company will also give money. So every dollar that you give becomes $2, and we, everybody advocates this such a great system. Well, I feel like every little bit of energy that you put out in a divine way, the divine responds. And it responds because it's, it, you are now working with your own true nature. It's not merely that God is pleased with you and then somehow rewards you or something like that. It's that when we're, we're, we're maintaining our separateness, we're having to exert all that energy against the pull of divine love forward. I feel like the ego is like, um, you remember those cartoons, they would have those diving bubbles? I don't know if any of those things still exist. Sometimes, I I mean, the cartoons that have such things, but there were these little diving bubbles. Or you have all these movies about submarines, which are much too realistic for the image that I want here. But when when you send the diving bubble down into the bottom of the ocean, it takes a tremendous force to keep the ocean at bay. You know, it's, it has to be really solid because it's the, the ocean wants to rush in and fill that space. And our, our little egos are like this diving bubble that we create in, the, in an ocean of grace. And it, ta- it takes tremendous amount of energy to maintain our separateness when the power of the divine is all around us just wanting to flood into us. So any little motion that we make in the right direction um, moves us with that power. So we become much more, immediately we become much more powerful than we would be if we were just operating in our own little 
separate universe. Just like if there was a little hole in the diving bubble, all that ocean will come in. That's where the image becomes a little foggy because we think of ourselves as being crushed or drowned at that point, which we will be, but it doesn't look attractive to us sort of in that context. But you understand what I'm saying. So, um, now, let me find it for just a second. So I've, I've so often um, had this conversation with people about all the things that they're not doing spiritually. People will come to me sometimes just so uh, discouraged because they're not meditating as much as they should. They took a higher Kriya initiation and now they're not practicing it. They only energize sometimes. You know, whatever it might be. One woman in particular came to me and she really didn't have a lot going on in that respect. But she was always here for every event and was always wholeheartedly involved and, and participated and served and was creative and gave to everything. I said to her, but you love the vibration of our temple, don't you? And she said without any hesitation that she, you know, she adored the vibration of our temple. It was the, her favorite place to be. Now, think for a moment what that means, really. Because once you step into this particular space, or any Ananda temple, it, it's, it's a unique reality, and something completely different is happening within the sphere of Ananda than is happening anywhere else that you go. I mean, because of where we live, you can go to Trader Joe's on the way here, you can stop at Starbucks, you can pick up a pizza, you can, I don't know what else there is to do, but there's all kinds of things that you can do. In other words, you can test it, you can step in and out of countless different vibrations, can't you? And it's not like all of them are awful. Some of them are awful, but not all of them are awful. They're just completely different. And people are just doing something completely different there. I swim at the YMCA many days in the week, and it's a whole universe. Um, It's a social universe that I've, after... 15 or 20 years, I don't, I don't think I know the name of a single other person there. I'm markedly antisocial because, it's, I mean, many of the people who go there, it's their, it's their social group, but I'm not part of it. But I watch it. And it's just this whole world of people talking about their vacations and endlessly about their grandchildren and just and all, on and on. Very nice people, all just doing what they do. But it isn't here. It has nothing to do with what's going on here. So even just the desire to be here, because it feels like home. I mean, think how much that means about how many shifts you have to make inside yourself from a purely materialistic or worldly view of life. Otherwise, you just won't come, because you won't enjoy it at all. Now, from the Master's point of view, he, he's looking at us from... Well, as when Swami said, when Swami, one of Swami's uh, friends had that vision of them being master's disciples, I think he said Lemuria, Lemuria, which is what, 10,000 years or so ago or something, if it even existed. And uh, Swami was just appalled at the idea that they've been master's disciples for 10,000 years and they haven't become realized. And Swami, with great uh, distress, went to master and said, have I been your disciple for thousands of years? <clears throat> Master said diplomatically, 
it's been a long time, that's all I'll say. <laughs> in fact, I think that's in this book, that story. It's been a long time, that's all I'll say. So if the master is following us for this very long period of time, think how much he sees us do, how much folly he sees us commit, how many times he sees us come close. Swami freely tells us several stories, incarnations that, that he, he, he feels intuitively are true that were presented to him by the Brighu readers or um, other uh, paranormal psychic ways of knowing things or spiritual ways of knowing things, in which he became very highly advanced and then argued with his guru. Just had an argument with his guru and then went off for who knows how long. And then Swami also says the reason he he had to do so much talking and teaching in this lifetime was because he had had so many doubts in the past that I I think in one hand he's affirming his commitment Perhaps also he inspired others with doubt. And now he had to sort of balance all that karma. Now, I'm only just saying that because imagine your master's disciple, let's say, in some previous incarnation, Lemuria, Lemuria, wherever you might be, and you're going along pretty well. And then you just blow out for some reason or another. And the master has to just watch you blow out and go off again. Signor Cuaron, who was a very devoted disciple of Master from Mexico, um, Master said to him, I lost sight of you for a few incarnations, but I'm not going to lose sight of you again. And Mr. Cuaron would often say to Master, don't forget your promise. And Master would say, I won't forget. I won't lose track of you again. But think of what that means. Now, in the light of that, Do you think the master cares about the little stuff? Do you think that he isn't going to be entirely and only focused on everything that you offer him that he can use to pull you closer and rejoice in every part of it? We pick every little thing apart and have such a... And what is also... Master can see all the karma. You know, he, he can see what you're balancing. He might see what a heroic effort it was, for example, for this particular man you know, to, to want master's vibration enough to come. Not enough to learn the meditation techniques and practice on his own, but nonetheless, whenever he had the opportunity to be in master's company. So what is master's response going to be to that? Well, no, you haven't met the standard. You can't come. That was Swami's way of dealing with it. You know, you have to be different than you are before I'm going to love you before I'm going to accept you, before I'm going to be nice to you. Master even took Swami's comment, this man is insincere, he doesn't follow through. Oh, well, have fun today with him. And what was Master's idea of having fun? To just keep loving him. Just to keep loving him. So simple, isn't it? When I first moved to this area from Ananda village, which was now what I might call a hundred years ago, but it wasn't really that long, but it's pushing... You know, it's past 25 and closer to 30. And 16 years in a remote mountain ashram, and it was much more remote at that time. And a very... um, You had to be pretty serious to be able to live at the village at that time. It it didn't seem so to me, but looking back in retrospect, because there was a lot of nothing there in terms of comfort or security or anything. It felt to me 
like heaven on earth and the safest place on the planet. But that was just my perspective on it. But it was a, it, you, you were a pretty dedicated group there. You know, we would joke about people say when they don't have any money, they just mean they don't want to touch their savings or, and they don't want to take any money out of their IRA. When we said we had no money, we meant we had no money. Like no money, <laughs> like nothing. That was what, that's what it meant to us to have no money. We were children with no responsibility, so it didn't matter in any case. But it was a very high standard in the sense of you had to be pretty sure of what you were doing. So I came here where it's a whole different reality, and I don't mean, I'm not talking about the caliber of dedication, just it's a whole different situation. People have their lives and their jobs and their families, and you know, spirituality fits into it. It's not, it's not an all-or-nothing choice. Living at Ananda Village in the 70s was an all-or-nothing choice. You just, there was no internet, there was no telephone. You were just gone from this world. Um, but my idea of things was so narrow, is actually the only word I can think of. I might have tried to elevate it to say that I had high standards, but actually my concept was just very narrow. I had one very simple idea of what it was supposed to look like. And it took me quite a long time, longer than I'm proud to admit, to, to just essentially what I finally did was I flipped it around. And I figured compared to people who have no idea about God at all, anybody who has even the slightest bit of interest you know, is a potential saint because they're facing in the right direction. And it, it, served, uh, it served me well to shift my thinking. It made me more nicer. But it also serves all of us. You know, we, we just have to look at what the, the vanguard of the ship is for us. Whatever part of us is pulling us toward God, and we just have to put all our attention on that. And think that same way about each other. Because, what, as Master says, how many of you would still be here if I was so... And the, what interesting word he used? Behave so unforgivingly. Because that implies... Master's perfectly conscious of all the ways in which we don't honor his teachings or really keep our promises to him. But we're trying, and he cheers for us no matter what we do. And, and Swami learned a very good lesson because in the years that I knew Swami, he was so good, I mean just effortlessly good, at just focusing on the good qualities and just, you know, this is who this one is. Swami once said, he said it's very tempting to think, oh, if only this one had the qualities of that one, and if, the, if this one could just have all that they have plus this. So it's very tempting to go there. Don't, he said. <laughs> just don't. Just whatever it is that's positive, just emphasize that and enjoy it. You know, so-and-so really likes to arrange the flowers. So-and-so comes on Friday nights. So-and-so comes to, to Tuesday night dinner. You know, just whatever it might be, just emphasize that. And even more than that, really just define the person by that. Why define each other by our weaknesses? Why define yourself by your weaknesses? I mean, they're all there. And believe me, you don't have to think about them. They'll, they'll just hang around. But they don't get less by concentrating on them. In fact, it's exactly the opposite. The more you think about them, the more causal astral material, the more they really are part of who you are. My theory, my personal theory, which is not supported by anyone else, just want you to know, 
This is just the gospel according to Asha, which is very, very suspicious. I don't actually think we ever get any better. I think we remain the sort of same selfish, misguided twits that we always are. It's just we don't really pay attention to that part of ourselves anymore. We just get real happy. (laughs) And we just get happy. And we're happy all the time because we remember that we're God's children, that God loves us, and whatever happens, we just stay happy. And then all that other mess just keeps just twirling around. And, I mean, this is, you can see, it's not entirely true because there's this business about the vrittis and Kriya clearing out the vrittis and lots of stuff which contradicts this. But for practical purposes, it's true. For practical purposes, just who cares? Swami himself wrote that seriously in a Christmas letter that I quoted at some Sunday service recently. He just said, I just am less and less interested in my personality. He said, positive or negative. He said, it's just not me. And he said, it will evaporate in time. What difference does it make? He said, the only thing that really interests me is my relationship with God. Think how free you are. You see how far you are toward spiritual freedom just by that thought? It's, it's really, I, I, maybe it's just a mental trick. But it, it, just to think of yourself as just an unfortunate accident that's just going to run its course but doesn't have a whole lot to do with you. Okay. Does that work for anyone else besides me? <laughs> Any other comments or thoughts about this? It's also very dear that that man retained in his own unusual fashion until the end of his life the attitude of a devoted disciple. And think how powerful that is. When you've been on the path as long as I have, you realize how many people don't last. And so anyone who actually just lasts and never gives up. I I saw someone not too long ago that I had known in the 70s who took another correction direction in their life and you know you could see the regret the regret was so clear and from the world's point of view the life had gone fine but you could see you just it's sort of the memory of what had been true at one point and where did it go so for us to really hold but the fact is the person was here so that was a good step but to hold the attitude of a devoted disciple until the end of life. And Master says that, those who persevere to the end, when you take your last breath, I or one of the other Masters will be there to take you across. Now, that's worth doing, isn't it? Because when this world slips away, what, what are you really going to hold to? What vibration will interest you? Because that, as I understand, that's how it works. You're, you're sort of, everything is moving out of its... It's no longer physical. I mean, people do crazy things, um, you know, grabbing somebody, you know, somebody tries to take your diamond ring off, somebody tells some story, somebody tries to take the ring off the dead or dying person and it's enough to bring him back into his body, you know, because <laughs> he wants that diamond. But mostly things, the material world, you lose the capacity to relate to it or even to perceive it and you just start seeing, feeling things on the energy plane, on the astral plane. But what vibrations are you going to be drawn to? You see, that's what happens. You start moving through that tunnel and 
you're, you're going through your own spine and you're, the different vibrations, which, what vibration is going to draw you? you know, is it going to be the, the image of the light in which all other considerations, all other longings and regrets are going to be eliminated? Or all, are all those things, as we go past them, will they hold us? And as I understand it, this, is, this essentially determines at what vibration you leave your body is what holds you. And regret, self-condemnation, disappointment in oneself, anger at oneself is a very, very, very powerful vibration. But if instead all that we're remembering, as this devoted disciple did, was all those days with Master, how much I loved being with him. And when this whole world begins to fade, that's the only thing you see. Kamala um, Silva, at the end of her life, she was Master's devoted disciple, you. For those of you who saw the meeting of the Masters, that was the part Erica played. She met Master when she was a teenager and was devoted to him to the end of her life. At the end of her life, her brain stopped working. And so she didn't really know anything. She couldn't cognize this world in any kind of reasonable way anymore. She had always been devoted to animals, and she decided at the end of her life, all her stuffed animals, she thought they were real pets, and just had marvelous time with all her pets. And she was in some facility in Oakland that was not particularly uplifting, and she would look out the window at this terrible view of a driveway, actually, and she thought she was looking at the Himalayas. She didn't have any of her, of that kind of intellect left, but she remembered Master. Isn't that interesting? She, she remembered him. She knew him, and she knew she was his disciple. She didn't know her own name. She didn't know who was with her, but she remembered him because it was the vibration that attracted her. Everything else that was happening around her or that had ever happened in her life, she, she, just, she could just let it pass. The only vibration that attracted her. Because that's what you're seeing. You're not, I mean, Master may come to us in a way that we can recognize, but, but he's, not, he's not there. He's not there like he was when he was incarnated in his body. You recognize him by his vibration. And if you're attracted to that, if you've practiced being attracted to that, in whatever ways work for you. And think how happy the Master is. How is Amalita Galakuchi? Oh, she's soaring in God, the Master said blissfully. It's nice if you do the other things that Master say will help you get there, but it doesn't matter as long as you do everything you can do and that you don't let go of what you can do out of guilt or fear about what you can't do. That's what happens. Oh, well, I'm not doing this, so therefore I can't do anything. I think Satan's got a hold of you. Be careful on that one. Yes. Pass it on. So that left it open for Kamala to actually transcend whether she had a mind or not. Her mind, yes. Yes, that was the conversation I had with Swami. Swami, Kamala's lost her mind. Swami said to me, and then I said that to Swami. She's lost her mind. He said, Asha, it's just her mind. He just said it so casual. It's just her mind. And I just said again, yeah, her mind. You know, I, I just, and then I met her. And I, I could say, oh, all she's lost is her mind. I mean, you don't have to know where you are. 
You don't have to know who's around you. None of that makes any difference. She recognized Master in, in herself. She recognized his vibration. That's all we're trying. That, we're just trying to overcome our mind in order to do that. And because she you know, was just so free, she was just very happy. She didn't suffer from what looked to others like confusion and deprivation. She was just perfectly cheerful because she was in that one. That's the only thing she remembered. Worth working toward, isn't it? All right, anything else? Number 21. On the importance of attunement, the master once remarked, when I help somebody, I forget everything else. It's a very interesting statement. We'll come back to that. If one wants to benefit spiritually, however, he must do what I say. This is in direct contradiction to what we've just been talking about. But that man came to see Master. It wasn't that he did nothing. Look at Bernard. For years I had him doing all that heavy work in his frail body, and he thrived. Bernard had only one lung and double curvature of the spine. He built that large dome tower in Encinitas, and even that hard work didn't hurt him. Then he began thinking that so much hard labor was too much for his body and asked to be relieved of it. I did as he asked. That's interesting also. Master just went along. I did as he asked. I gave him a large, comfortable room and got it fixed up specially for him. And yet, look at him. He keeps on getting worse. You have to be in tune with Guru and do what he says. If, then, you risk even being hurt working for God, he will protect you. These words of the Master's must be seen in the context, though, of his spiritual power. He himself told me, in speaking of his Ranchi school, that he used sometimes to lead the boys above a dangerous waterfall. Do you believe in God? He would cry loudly. Yes, came the shouted reply. No one was ever hurt. The Master related to me, however, an unfortunate sequel to that story. Years later, after I'd come to America, the master said, one of the teachers tried to do the same thing. He took boys over the waterfall as I had done. He lacked spiritual power, however. One of the boys slipped and fell to his death. True faith, the master concluded, comes only from actual spiritual experience. It cannot be presumed. To return to Bernard, he was very sincere. For years, he followed the master faithfully. After some time, however, concern for his own physical well-being, and even more so, I'm afraid, a growing self-assurance on his part that, in practical matters, he knew more than the master, a self-assessment that, as was obvious to me, was entirely illusory, caused him to withdraw proudly into his own ego. The sad ending to this story is that he fell spiritually and left both the guru and the teachings. I had noticed earlier to my regret that the more Bernard opened himself to other lines of thinking from the masters, the further he withdrew into a kind of mental peak. Finally, he grew attuned entirely to worldly ways and their unceasing emphasis on the ego. Bernard's thinking became twisted to conform with those ways. 
truly as the master wrote in Autobiography of a Yogi, quoting his own guru, a keen intelligence is a two-edged sword. It can be used either to lance the boil of ignorance or to decapitate oneself. Well, that's quite a story. Um, For those of you who are familiar with Swami's autobiography, The New Path, Bernard was a key person in bringing in Swami's early years because Bernard was a minister and he was a leader at the time. And when Master Swamiji first arrived at Mount Washington, Master sent Bernard to familiarize him with the teachings, to teach him the techniques. Master gave services at the Hollywood Church and Swami was very very impressed. He was a very intelligent speaker and um, seemed, you know, to have a good grasp on everything that was going on. Plus, he, he had this own story of his own um, decrepitude that had seemed to be able to be overcome by the Master's power to move him through uh, more than his body was able to do. So it was a, a, a painful personal loss for Swamiji to see Bernard pull away in that way. And uh, the other one who was very close with Swami was Norman Paulson, whom Master described as, as his giant. He's a great big man. And both of them uh, left the ashram and went on their own way. And very interestingly, at, toward the very end, I mean, it was in the late 70s, but it was toward the end of Bernard's life. Norman lived a bit longer, but it was just before the end of Bernard's life. When Swami Kriyananda was traveling around the country, he went to Norman Paulson's community in Santa Barbara, and Bernard came. And Swamiji did his very best, which Swami did all the way through his life. Every, every erstwhile disciple, every one who had been close to Master at one point that Swami knew, and in one way or another had drifted away, um, Swami made every effort to contact them and try to re-inspire them with a greater commitment to Master and there's a, a really beautiful photograph of uh, Bernard and Swami on either side of Nor- uh, Norman, and they're all holding hands. It's taken in the late 70s at uh, Norman's community. What's the name of his community? Sunburst. Sun- Sunburst. Sunburst, yeah. But uh, Swami never said a lot about it, but he said enough that he felt that Bernard had turned back toward Master by the time his life was done. Um, Lauren Deacon, for those of you who, who knew him, Lauren lived here for a number of years and then felt inspired to go to Michigan to uh, help Master's work there. Um, he had been very, he knew Bernard because Bernard was with Oliver Black and he, he sort of also spoke of how intelligent and dedicated in so many ways Bernard was. But you have this It's very, very subtle because we have both sides of the story here. First, you have the story of Bernard utterly disregarding anything that you would think of as a balanced response to his physical well-being and just standing in in master's ray and and being able to do things that were, were otherwise impossible for him and having the actual experience of it actually happening. See how strong he was. Master had him just contradicting all the physical evidence, and it worked. And then somewhere in there, Bernard began to doubt. Even though he was having the experience himself, he began to become concerned 
for his own well-being, and he started asserting it. And you see, Master's way of working was he didn't try to persuade you with words, and he didn't try to contradict you. Swamiji said he could see right into your karma, but he, he, he never just sat down and explained it to you. He said, Swami just said he would push you in a direction that would give you the experience you needed that would awaken you to what it was that you were able or capable of learning. Because Master didn't want this just to be intellectual. He, he, he referred to a DD degree, a doctor of divinity, as a doctor of delusion. And he said, I don't just turn out DDs here. I mean, we turn out real saints because we earn our realization through our own experience. So when Bernard began to doubt the power of Master, also, as soon as Master began to doubt, uh, Bernard began to doubt, you see, that put him a little out of tune with Master. And then it wasn't possible for Master to give him the same kind of energy. So unfortunately, these things become self, self-fulfilling. You, you, you doubt, you move out of attunement a little bit, you're holding back, and then in fact the power doesn't flow in the same way. And that's a little bit of the story that um, Swami put in there, that other story, about how Master could carry those boys across the waterfall because Master had the power through him to do it, and he knew that he did. And he literally he could surround those boys and they just would be safe moving across. Remember, it's a, it's a silly story by comparison, But when Master came back from Mexico with a car full of mangoes, which you're not allowed to bring into California, and Dr. Lewis, who was with him, said the car absolutely reeked of mangoes. It was just as palpable as anything. And they came to the border, and the border guards, instead of saying, this car is filled with mangoes, you can't bring them in, just waved them through. And Dr. Lewis said later, he wasn't sure how it was done, but he saw a blue light surrounding the car. (laughs) Master just exerted his force, put a blue light around the car, and presumably the guard couldn't smell the mangoes, or it just didn't occur to him, and he just waved them right through. It was a trivial use of it, but nonetheless, Master had the capacity to do that. So when he, he could look at these boys, and they were also in tune with him, they, they had faith in him. They believed. Do you believe in God? When they said yes, somehow there was a link formed. And so Master could safely carry them across. But then the other teacher just replicated what Master did, but he didn't understand that it wasn't what he did. It was the consciousness he had doing it. And so we ourselves, we always, this is where we started our class this evening. We always have to be thinking not about the form of things, but What is my real consciousness? And this line between having the courage to step forward and having the humility to act appropriately, appropriately given our actual reality as we know it. You know, this is why Swamiji himself always suggests just take things a step at a time. People often, the first thing they want to do is essentially throw themselves over a cliff You know, just, if this is true, then it's all true. No, that's presumption. That's not faith. And so this other teacher was presumptuous. Master could take them safely across, therefore I can take them safely across. But he wasn't having the experience of the energy flowing through him and the connection with those souls that he could take them across. A very tough lesson. 
So when Bernard comes to Master and is telling him, essentially, despite all that you've done for me, now I doubt. And what could Master do? Well, you can never feel completely safe until you're in Nirbhakalpa Samadhi. And you, you just have to pay attention. You have to just pay, and you have to not get casual about it. You know, I hear people say, well, you know, I used to go to Sunday service and now I don't. I used to go to the satsangs, but now I don't. I used to go to dinner, but now I don't. You know, I'm just on my own now. And pretty soon you really will be on your own because where are you renewing the energy? You have to just, you have to, every day has to be like, I'm just starting on the path. And whatever I need to do to keep myself in tune with it, you have to just watch your life. And when you see your life one way or another, that those things that used to, those vibrations that used to really be attracted to, you now are just letting slip away. Either it's just the karmic sands have run out for you, and if that's okay with you, then let them go, or your plant needs to be nurtured again. You need to remind yourself. See, the thing is, once you lose touch with that vibration, you don't even remember that it's there. That's the thing that I've watched so many times. People just, I, people just don't remember it's there. They don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have any awareness of anything being lost because it's so subtle they just don't even know it's there anymore. And they'll just go on to the next step. And it's not like every, everything is a tragedy. People just, we, just do what we have to do. And we have to learn. You know, a lifetime in which you start and then fall away um, and maybe return you learn something. You may learn something. You will eventually learn something. But uh, pay attention. Let's take a little break. Oh, well, om, om, peace, amen. And one of the little children, one of the little children who'd been since birth, every meal, om, peace, amen. Finally, when she was about three, she said, why do we only bless the peas and the almonds? (laughs) That's all she'd heard. Swami's favorite was, though, well, shepherds washed their socks at night. (laughs) Well, shepherds watched their flocks at night. It's from some Christmas carol. Well, shepherds washed their socks. (laughs) Oh, dear. Okay, moving on. So, does anybody have any questions or comments about what we were talking about so far? Where are we exactly? Oh, okay. I've, I've laughed so much I can't remember now where we were. Okay, actual experience. Oh, yes, this is where we were talking about. You know, this is the uh, first, did nobody raised their hand. Um, this whole cycle with Bernard and the, the issue of the two-edged sword of the intellect is really worth thinking about. And, and Swami traces through here, and he, 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 in uh, The New Path, there's a chapter called Attunement, and he traces the same cycle through here, where often what happens, the first thing that happens to a devotee when he's going to get, start getting out of tune, is that he still believes that the master is a great master, but he becomes a little bit um, condescending about his lack of practicality, or he doesn't really understand the internet, or he doesn't really get marketing like we understand marketing. You know, just some little bit where you're able to put yourself just kind of, you know, on a, a, a slightly higher plane. 
And Swami describes the whole story of the fall of Judas, which is so hard to understand in the Bible because Judas was one of the 12 apostles. He was a highly advanced soul, and yet he became the instrument of uh, betraying his master. Like, how could you be? This is the question that we ask, and we were, that's what the whole first hour was. How, why do you get out of tune when you don't want to get out of tune? And so what Swami wants to trace for us is what the first steps look like. And the first steps for Bernard were asserting what he thought he needed that Master wasn't paying attention to. I need a more comfortable room. And I, I, I never finished that thought. Master, instead of um, contradicting him and ordering him to do something else, he saw where it was going. And, and what Master sometimes did, the way he himself described it, he would push you in the direction you were going. He would exacerbate the wrong attitude that you had in the hope of getting you to really see it. So uh, he talked about a time that he was, Master was traveling with someone who thought Master was very vain for one reason or another. And Master was always primping in front of the mirror and talking about his hair and worrying about his clothes. He was just, instead of contradicting it, he just kept, he saw it in the man's mind and he kept pushing it and pushing it. And if you're attuned, you, you kind of get what's going on. I've had, I've had experiences with Swamiji where he was just playing with us. And it's not like he was doing it um, with any egoic intention or manipulating us or anything like that. He, was just, he would just play with us. You sort of start on a wrong attitude and he would just see how far you would go with it. And he would, he would push you in that direction, even co- seemingly cooperate with you until you yourself, if I could, am I making that clear? You yourself would suddenly feel what he was really doing, that he wasn't really endorsing what you were thinking. He was just making it more and more exaggerated, hoping that you would notice. But, of course, you don't always notice. So here's Bernard, who had been very strong, no matter how weak he was, when he was following what Master wanted of him, but now he feels weak. So Master says, okay, so here's your nice room. You can have just what you want. I, I, I remember an actual example from my life when the first version of the readings that we have on Sunday are, um, it's, he's, he wrote, he's written the, the Bible Gita commentary three times. The first time was rays of the same light. Yes, rays of the same light. And they were our Sunday service readings, and they were really long, really long, like two or three times as long as what we're reading. Yeah, pardon me. And they didn't read well, and they were awful. And uh, they, and I just, I couldn't stand them. I was having such a hard time with it, just extremely difficult, and I just really didn't want to have to read them. I felt that I had a lot to say, and when we had to spend 15 minutes on those readings, I just felt like it. what people wanted on Sundays was the sermon and the chanting and the meditation, and then we'd have these interminable readings that it was just, I was, I've had very strong feelings about it. And there was some gathering where there were a lot of people in the house that we were living in at that time, and there was a big discussion about these readings. And finally... Swami turned to me and said, you don't have to use them, Asha. 
And then there was some protest. Well, you know, if she doesn't use them, then so-and-so is not going to want to use them. No, Asha just doesn't have to use them. She doesn't have to use them. And it was like, that's what I was asking for. And he just gave it to me. You know, and, and there was, I was really, I had a choice. Because I was, on one level, I was so happy to just be relieved of it. But, you know, there was something about this did not feel right. <laughs> and later I was in the kitchen of that house, and it's oddly how, you know, inspiration comes to you. I had a trash can where you stepped on it and the lid came up. I'm standing with a, some garbage in my hand. I stepped on that lid and the lid came up. I'm holding the garbage. And I, I thought just as clear as day, if I stop using those readings, I'm going to leave this path. Yeah, it was, it was just, there was no question in my mind. It was an absolute fact. And so I, I threw the garbage in and I dropped the lid. And I came to Swami and I said, no, sir, I'm going to keep using them. He didn't make any comment one way or another, but, it, you know, he was just pushing me. You're so special. You've got so much to say. You don't have to do what everyone else does. This is what we're all doing, but you don't have to do it. That's, you know, that was where I was going. So he just gave it to me. But I could feel it. I could feel it wasn't really that I had his blessings. He was just pushing the attitude for me. And I got it, thank God, and I closed it. And, you know, he kind of, oh, he kind of, he kind of played, oh, no, you don't have to. No, sir, I'm going to use them. <laughs> you bet I'm going to use them. And that, then the rest of that story was he finished writing the Rubaiyat, and we decided that we would read from the Rubaiyat every Sunday instead of those other readings, which I got letters from a lot of other people. Hallelujah! Because I wasn't the only one, and I was, I was the one who persuaded. And so, you know, under the wire, people were telling me how happy they were not to have to do those readings. And uh, we did it for a year, and then uh, I managed to persuade him to do it for a second year. <laughs> and then he... Somehow the whole karma was over and he started writing the version we use now. But he would, uh, I know what happened. This is how he describes it. He says, he received a tear-soaked fax from me. (laughs) A fax that was dripping with my tears, pleading with him not to make us go back to those readings. And so he started writing the ones he writes now. And he, he tells the big story about how what an effort it was and what a strain it was on him to just stay ahead of us and how he had so much else to do, but he had to do it because there was Asha in Palo Alto just having such a fit over these things. I mean, he played it to the end. <laughs> but it was there. There was that moment. You know, you're, you're heading down the slippery slope. In this, I know more than Swami. Because after all, I'm here and I'm doing this and he's not doing it every week like I am. I know more than he does. Just one, two, three, four. Okay. So that was Bernard. But then also he, you know, it's a particular factor when he was talking about Judas. He was talking about Judas. The whole story, the way he tells it is, you know, you hear it during Christmas or Easter, but it's so interesting. Judas was an educated man, a charismatic man. Judas took care of the finances for the whole group. I mean, that's a, a position of enormous trust a level of great competence. He must have also been, by implication, he was effective in the world because the person who manages the finances has to have that kind of awareness. Someone else could be a much greater saint, but even by their very nature, they might not be able to manage that. 
So Judas could do all of these things. And the, the tipping point that's described in the Bible is when Mary Magdalene came in and squandered the costly ointment in devotion. Because Mary Magdalene's consciousness was just entirely of, of total devotion for Jesus. She wasn't thinking about anything else. And as an expression of her devotion, she brought this very costly bottle of ointment and broke it over his feet or broke it over his hair until the room reeked with whatever this was. But she was just there, you know, anointing the body of Jesus because it seemed like the most obvious thing to do. And Judas was just completely um, appalled by it. He was probably appalled by every aspect of it. She was kneeling at his, at Jesus' feet, rubbing his feet with her hair. Picture it. You know, we're all just sitting here and some woman comes in and, you know, kneels in front of Stephen and starts, you know, or, or Swami, even Swami. I mean, we would, you know, there's just, there would just be a piece of many people who have too narrow a sense of propriety, which is one of the fetters of the spiritual path, too narrow a sense of propriety, who just wouldn't be able to even comprehend what she was doing. So Judas makes the remark of, you know, this is a, this is a waste of money. We could have, and then he says what he thinks will be pleasing to people. We could have given all that money to the poor. But then the Bible says, not that Judas cared about the poor. And then they say he kept the purse, but he was, he was embezzling from the purse. In other words, Judas was not what he seemed, but he, there he was. He was contradicting. And Jesus did not stop her, you see. Jesus completely accepted it. He could have stopped her. He could have said, dear, really, that's enough. But he didn't. He completely allowed her to do that. And Judas was just offended. But, you, but it had been building. And the way Swami talks about it is that Judas thought that the way for that message to succeed was to become powerful in the world. And this is where Judas is nature because he was a, a seemingly powerful in the world and he wanted Jesus to play the game. You know, just please the powerful people. Get them on our side. We can do more, we can do more good if we get them on our side. And, and Jesus wouldn't hear about it. But Judas had become convinced that he knew better. And what Swami writes, which is, and Master writes the same, is so fascinating, is that Jesus was, Judas was not, and Ju- Judas never imagined that Jesus would allow himself to be arrested and never imagined that he would allow himself to be executed. What Judas planned was that he was going to force Jesus to show his power. He was, he was trying to engineer a confrontation in which he thought that Jesus would triumph. Because it wasn't like he wasn't still with him, but he had allowed the thought to come into his mind, and this matter I know more than Jesus does. I know really more how we ought to get this show on the road, and he just doesn't, so I'm just going to take it in my own hands. And that's why immediately after Judas killed himself. I mean, you would have thought otherwise, if that's what he'd wanted to have happen, why, would he, why did he immediately kill himself? He immediately killed himself because it had all gone so horribly wrong, which is why it only took him 2,000 years to get over it. <laughs> because Master said Jesus was liberated. Judas was liberated in the 1900s. 2,000 years is quite a while, but still. But even then, he was a disciple of Ramakrishna. And Master tells it that 
he still, uh, he still had a little bit of attachment to money. And when the other disciples started teasing him about it, Ramakrishna said, don't. He said, he suffered enough for that. Just uh, look at what the masters see in us. But still, he was liberated. But Swami's, I mean, that's a gigantic story. But that's exactly the story that he's telling about Bernard. That Bernard started being a little snide about Master. Oh, you know, he doesn't know anything about organizing. He doesn't really know how to make one make it work. You know, he's, he's a, a good guru, but he doesn't have this practical. And Bernard was smart. And, you know, it's, if you're smart, you can analyze things and you can see how it could be done better. You're, you're analyzing a completely other reality than what the Master's actually doing. But you can spin it in your head until it all works. And Swami uh, uses the phrase here. And then he began, let's see, how did he say it? Um, He was sincere. For years he followed the master faithfully. At some time, however, concerned for his own physical well-being. And even so, I'm afraid more so. And then Swami says it happened simultaneously. A growing self-assurance on his part that in practical matters he knew more than the master. Swami adds, a self-assessment that was not true, but nonetheless he had it, caused him to withdraw proudly into his own ego. Okay. The sad ending is that he fell spiritually and left both the guru and the teachings. And then Swami uses this phrase, I had noticed earlier to my regret that the more Bernard opened himself to other lines of thinking from the masters. And this is where you start, well, I'll take some of this teaching and some of that teaching and some of this one. And master really doesn't have this part straight, but he really has that part straight. And so I'll take a little of this, you know, a little of that. Other lines of thinking from the masters, the further he withdrew into a kind of mental peak. It's a phrase that Swami has used in other... Pardon me? On to, correct onto a kind of mental peak. Swami has often talked about people creating this kind of enormous space in their own minds, enormous space in their own minds in which they, they're just their own thinking takes them. And they're no longer um, participating in a, an actual way with the world around them. They're just observing everything from the realm of their own thoughts about it. And so Bernard, because he was apparently an extremely intelligent man, and had had a position based on his ability to express the teachings and all of that, and was recognized for that. And he just became more and more enamored of that reality. And again, there's no attunement then. And then he starts weighing and measuring what Master says, and weighs it against what this one said, and weighs it against what that one says. And then he becomes in tune with those realities. This is where the phrase attunement comes. He becomes in in tune with other ways of thinking. I remember when Ananda first, um, we first wanted to get out of our poverty-stricken existence in the 70s, and we sort of were going to start studying prosperity, and people were um, going out and finding the Unity Church books and the Church of Religious Science and various books about prosperity, which, I mean, I never really looked at any of them, but they were all out there. But I remember saying to Swami, many things that are well known now we, we just didn't have. We didn't have access to. Master's writings were sequestered within the archives of SRF. We hadn't gone through all that that freed them up, and Swami hadn't done as much writing. But I just said to Swami, surely 
there's teachings about prosperity within Master's own writing. Why would we have to go and study somebody else? And Swami's answer was, of course. And, and we, we don't want to be fanatical about it, but you also have to bear that in mind. It's lots of people teach lots of different things. The more he opened himself to other lines of thinking from the Master. And this is, you just have to ask yourself, you know, how vulnerable am I? How much do I want to risk? And you have to be real, to, you have to be sincere. But he's written right here. The further he withdrew, of course, he was already on an egoic cycle. Finally, he grew attuned entirely to worldly ways with their unceasing, unceasing emphasis on the ego. He doesn't really talk more about it, but you can imagine. Well, with your intelligence and your charisma, just imagine what you could do. Oh, you're just a, a mere monk here, just a little temp- temple. I mean, think what you could really have if you really did it on your own. I mean, you can hear the devil inspiring people to say things like that to him. And him beginning to think, yeah, maybe it's true. Who knows? Okay, yes. Is there any um, truth to the notion that sometimes these things happen because, in part or totally, because we just don't have the capacity to follow the truth any further at that point in our evolution? So we. Well, if you want to, you know, make yourself feel okay about everything, you have to say that. Karma, it just has to play itself out, and sometimes it can't be helped. Master does his part, and then karma sweeps you away. I think that's what Master said about Senor Quarrel. No, that was what uh, Babaji said to Lahiri. Your karma swept, the waves of your karma swept you away, and I lost sight of you. I'm not really quite sure what that means. But I'll also, yeah, you look back, and you, you look back and you say, I don't know why I did that. But just at the time, it was the only decision you could make. Somehow there was a force within you that just caused you to make that decision. And that's one of the reasons why it doesn't really matter how many times you fall, just as long as once you realize that you've moved away. I remember being very, very out of tune um, living at Ananda once. I just got really out of tune. Just one, I had said one crabby complaining idea after another and, and uh, just was retreating to a mental peak and just found myself really quite isolated and feeling really disconnected from everything. I didn't really enjoy feeling that way, and I still remembered that I wanted to feel another way, and I started to get quite agitated about it. And then all of a sudden I realized, honey, you just walked the wrong direction. That's how you got here. Just turn around and walk back. And I really just physically, virtually just did. And I just started reversing my wrong attitudes and behaving appropriately. And in a very short period of time, I was back where I wanted to be. And so as soon as we discover that we're not where we want to be, what do you think happened with Swami? He fought with his guru. He had sabakalpa samadhi. He had peace in his vrittis. He had an argument with his guru. Everything fell apart. At some point, he figured out that he was wrong. And what do you do when you figure out when you're, what, that you're wrong? Oh, you turn around and you try to go back. And Swami just says it all very casually, but my word... How many days and nights of, of sadness and sorrow and self-recrimination must have happened? But in the end, what did he do? He just turned back and went the right direction. And you just have to realize how simple it is. That time when that happened to me, I just was, I was weeping and lamenting and 
And then just something in me said, honey, you got yourself into this? Just get yourself out of it. The picture was so simple. Just turn and walk the other way. And just immediately, I just started responding to life with a more open heart, a more loving attitude, a more inclusive and less of all the other egoic things that had kept me going. And sometimes you don't catch it for an incarnation or two. But sooner or later, you will. You must. Because if you were ever sincere, it never goes away. But pay attention. The devil is wily. You know, you listen. You begin to hear. And what you begin to hear is, well, you know, Ananda's really nice in certain ways, but they, they just do some things that I just don't approve of. And I just don't know why they don't get it together. You know, they could just... It'd be so easy to just make it work. And they, I don't know why they don't just make it work. I mean, you just start, make a list. Because it's all true. But what do you love? Where do you want to be? What are your choices? Okay? I won't exactly say that was fun, because it wasn't really, but it was, it was, <laughs> it was informative. Okay, we've got poor Bernard there. Um, Tricia has a that picture of Bernard and Norman and Swamiji and she'll, we'll get it up. Maybe you can just print out a version too if you can and we'll just share it. It's a very nice picture. Nice to see. Okay, so we just did number, uh, we did three. Thank you. We did 19, 20 and 21. So we start on 22 next time.